0: teaching our children are we going to leave it to the world or are we going to take the responsibility that is ours as a church to teach the children that God has entrusted to us and I think we're doing a great job at that but the responsibility of teaching the children is not only for the parents but I think it's in this crowd for the grandparents For the grandparents, our responsibility is not over simply because we have passed it over to our children now. They have children of their own, and some of us have great-grandchildren in this room. You still have a responsibility to teach your children. And so the reality is that all of us should be interacting. We should be involved in ministering to children because, after all, that is the next generation, isn't it? The next generation of leaders who are going to be coming up. And if we don't invest as a church in children and and in younger adults, eventually the church will die off and we will cease to exist. So it's important for us to take the time to invest in kids. Not only because of that, because of the responsibility that we have as ministers to make that a reality. God mandated it to us. And I want to go to a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 as we focus on the family today. And some of you are kind of wondering, you know, what part do I play? I'm a parent, I'm a grandparent, I'm a great-grandparent, maybe I'm single, I don't have kids. Well, hopefully one day you will find that significant person that God has planned for you and you will have a family. And uh, you may then, through that family, then begin to have children. Uh, all of us have impact with kids and with children. So I think it's really, in essence, all of us are responsible then for this, this mandate that I believe is ours to sort of instill within our family unit Whatever our role is Maybe as a child As, as a single parent Or as a parent Or as a grandparent Or a great grandparent We all then have a responsibility To build into our family unit These strong characteristics And I want to take a look at them this morning There are seven of them In Deuteronomy chapter 6 If you know anything about Deuteronomy You know that Deuteronomy is One of the five books that Moses wrote We call them the Pentateuch The five And this is the last of the five. And it is here in the last remarks of this incredible leader named Moses who God raised up to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. And you know all the circumstances regarding that. And he gathered together several million people and they made a journey for 40 years in the wilderness because of a bad turn they made a bad decision I know any of us have made in our journey maybe in a vacation we're about to take a bad turn and we've wound up you know going further than we hoped to go well they made a bad decision and they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and now we see Moses coming to the conclusion of that and the people of God are at the threshing Uh, threshold of the promised land they're about to cross over the Jordan and Moses is about to breathe his last breath and 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 sort of exit the scene and he wants to instill in these people that that he's been leading now for about 40 plus years in the wilderness he's he's familiar with them he knows them well He's he's struggled with them, he's he's worshipped with them, he's battled with them, he's journeyed with them, he's sweated with them, and now it comes to the end of the journey for him, but not for them. A whole generation now has died out, and there's a new generation that he's investing in, and as he invests in this new generation, he's saying by the passage that we're reading, and throughout basically the whole narrative of the book of Deuteronomy, this one classic line. It's a line that I think that many have used in politics and many have used in religion, but it's still true today. So goes the family as the nation goes. As our families go, the nation also follows quickly behind it. And if we see the, the downward trend of the family unit in America, the country will quickly follow suit. And if there was ever a time in the history of the United States of America... That, that we have a calling back to the families in America, to the principles and the precepts of the word of God in the construction and the building of families. It is now, it is today, because right now the family is being redefined more quickly than any other redefinition in our nation. There's a battle for the family a battle to redefine the family unit, a battle to redefine the roles in that family unit, a battle to to define how families are structured, how they operate, and who's a part of them and who's not a part of them. And so this is very much relevant for us today as we take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 as Moses is instilling in the people, he's saying to them, as a nation, not addressing them as a nation, but as family units, as the family goes, so goes the nation, but I want to take it one step further. I think as the family goes, so goes the church. As the families go, so goes the church, because if we don't have strong families, we won't have a strong church, and if we don't have a strong church, we can't fulfill our great commission. And so in here we find then some very important marks, some characteristics of a strong family. Let's look at the first one in Deuteronomy chapter 6 beginning with verse 1. And we find here the first important point that I want to make is that that strong families follow the Lord carefully. They follow the Lord carefully. Look at verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all his statues and his commandments, which I commanded you, all the days of your life. How long are we to keep them? All the days of your life, and that your days may be long. There's prosperity there. There's, there's, there's a long life there. Now in verse 3, hear, hear with attentiveness, hear with understanding, hear with application, therefore, O Israel and the families of Israel, and be careful. Notice he says, be careful. He says that multiple times in this narrative in the book of Deuteronomy. Be careful to do what? To do them. Be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. You want your life to go well? Be careful to do the commandments. Be careful to follow the word and the will of God, and that you may multiply greatly. Some of you said, I'm done with the multiplication thing. One way to grow a great church is to just have more children. So if you're, poss- if you're able, just think about that for a minute. Our nursery's already crowded, but that's okay. We'll make room for yours if you'd like to have more. Some of you say it'd be a miracle of God. I know a lady in the Old Testament who laughed. Just keep that in mind. Anyway. <laughs> I digress. Be careful to do them that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. There are three types of law described here. If you take a look at the context, it says the commandments, the statutes, and the rules. This is the Mosaic law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. Uh, Moses was well aware of the people that he was giving these laws to And he, he knew them very well And he wanted to make sure that because he was about to exit the scene He wanted to write them down So that they would have them in their possession So they could read them and understand them And follow them and apply them It was not only a moral law how to live It was not only a ceremonial law And how to engage in the worship of Jehovah God But it was also a judicial law by which they were then To govern the nation and the families of Israel Those were the things that he wrote down called the law And here in this passage, it's very clear that he's wanting them then to follow very carefully the commandments or the laws of God. How were they to do that? They were, first of all, to recognize the origin of the law. We must recognize where they come from. Where do these laws come from? Now, this is huge because in this debate and in this discussion, if we don't recognize where they come from, we're not going to value them and we're not going to apply them. And there's a lot of conflict and a lot of controversy today over where the Bible comes from that we hold in our hand today. Moses very clearly, very distinctly says that these laws don't come from him. Where do they come from? They come from God. God gave them to Moses, Moses gave them to the people, and now Moses is writing them down. The book, the Bible that we hold in our hand is not man's book. These are not man's thoughts, they are not man's ways. They are God's words, they are God's ways, and they reveal God's will for us. They're God's. They come from divine inspiration, from the Spirit of God, through the hearts and the penmanship of men, just like many of us in this room, as we are writing down that which comes from God. Now, if we do not recognize the origin from which these words come from, we will not value them and we will not follow them. And therein in lies the big debate. Did God really say that or did man say that? God said that. And if God said that, then we value it and we follow it. Do you value, do you understand the origin of what we hold in our hand if so once you recognize that you then receive it from God as your own it's his will they are his ways they, they are his words for us then not only to to embrace and to internalize but they are his words that we receive in that we follow them we make them ours Because we are his, they are ours. And because they are ours, we then seek to follow them. And once we receive them, we then reveal the truth of these words by actually doing what it says. For it is one thing to receive it and not allow that gift to have the impact that it was intended. Let me just add a, a sidetrack here. We went to the wedding up in Canada uh, last weekend. We were not here. I, I appreciate David preaching and being here. He's a phenomenal preacher, and, and, and a, I, I feel very, very good when he's in the pulpit. And, but thank you for the cards uh, that many of you gave. Uh, it, was, it was an incredible thing. It was a gift. Now, you intended that gift to be used. For to receive a gift and throw it on the shelf and not use the gift that was intended by the giver would not be good stewardship. And so because we then have received the gift of the Word of God who, that tells us the will and the ways of God, we must then implement it into our lives and use it for the intent and the purpose for why God gave it. And once we then do that, we then remember that as we then internalize it and apply it, we then, notice what it says, are to pass it on to whom? To who? To who? to the children, to the children. We have a responsibility to remember that, th- that this, this faith that we, that we live out day to day is not just ours, but it's a, a legacy, it's a heritage that God has given us to pass on to the next generation, and that generation passes it on to the next generation. For all of us in this room are a product of someone pouring into our lives their faith. And because of their faith, we now have learned about faith. We've learned about the Word of God. And so it begins then to build this this heritage, this legacy, this outpouring where we then take what God has entrusted to us and we then not just follow it ourselves, but follow the commandment to pass it on to others. We follow it very carefully, meticulously, making sure that we follow to the nth degree everything that God has commanded and instructed us to do. Secondly, not only do strong families follow the Lord carefully, but they also notice in in the next verse, verse 4 and 5 and 6, that we are to love the Lord completely. To love the Lord completely. For it's impossible for us to follow the Lord unless our love for the Lord is what it needs to be. Notice the text in verse 4. He says to the families of Israel, Hear, O families of Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be, where are they? On your heart. Not just in your hand, not on a bookshelf, not on a, on a, on a coffee table, but they are to be on your heart. He's crying out for those that he's speaking to from the word of God, the will of God, saying to them, I want you to be completely devoted to me. What type of devotion? Well, dare I challenge you to think about a theological devotion? I know that's kind of a stretch for most of us, but there's a theological devotion here in which he's speaking into the the families of Israel. He's saying to them, notice this important theological concept. The Lord our God, the Lord is how many gods? one God. In other words, he's saying to the people, make me exclusively your one and only God. Why? I am Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I am Lord. I am sovereign. I am reigning and ruling and sitting on a throne. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I am the sovereign God in control of everything, creating everything, sustaining everything. I am alone the Lord. I am the Lord. I own you, your mind, and everything that I have created. I am Lord. But not only am I Lord, I am your Lord. He says, Our Lord. There's a relationship there. And you and I have a relationship like they have, not not because we've been born Israelites, but because there was a moment in time in which we placed our faith and trust in Christ, and the moment we did, we entered into an intimate love relationship with this sovereign God who's sitting on the throne, and now he, like them, he is our God, our Lord. And our God and our Lord is one God. One God, not multiple, but he's one. He is unique. The word one means unique. He is uniquely one God. Why is that important? Because the land that they were about to occupy, the land that they came from, had multiple gods. And he understood the importance and the value of telling the people, as you're going in into this promised land, crossing the Jordan into Canaan, I want you to understand that as you're going to be surrounded by multiple gods, remember that you are a nation that has and believes and trusts in only one God. Only one God. Now, we live in a world like they live, or about to live, as they cross over to Jordan, with multiple gods. And we, tell, we, we hear people tell us that, that we are haters or that we are not politically correct if we tell people, you worship not only a false God, but a man-made God. What God is saying here is, I am not man-made. All other gods are man-made. I am not one God among many. I am not even one God above all the other gods. Do you follow me? I'm not one God among many, and I'm not one God above all the other gods. I am the only God. The only God. There is no other God. I don't care what religion it is and who they claim to be God. Their gods are man-made. There is only one God, and he is Jehovah God, and he is the only God. Not one God among many, not one God overall, the only God. And because he is the only God, we we recognize him exclusively as the only God. And because he is the only true and the only living God, we then honor him by devoting to him this transformational truth that applies to every aspect of our lives. Because, God, you are the only true and the only living God, now I submit to you, I honor you, I glorify you, I give you my all. A L L spells what? All. What does all mean? When it's convenient? What I want? What I desire? What someone else says? All means all. God, I make you exclusive. I make you inclusive in every aspect of my life. And the word here says that you shall put his word on your heart, meaning that we are to allow his word, his will, and his ways to transform every single aspect about our passions, our purpose, our plans. God, you are Lord. You control everything. Control me because I have given it all to you, everything. My finances, my future. My family, everything, God, is yours to do as you will because you are the sovereign God. And I have made the decision to love you only and exclusively with everything that I have. I give it to you. Didn't the Bible say in John three sixteen? for God so loved the world that he what? He gave. And God, because I love you, you're the only one true living God. I give you everything and Every one, everything, nothing held back. That's what strong families do. They love the Lord completely. They follow the Lord carefully. But thirdly, they transfer God's truth, notice what it says, convincingly. With a conviction in which we're transferring that conviction over to our children in a convincing way where they too then embrace our faith. Notice what it says in verse 7. It says, you shall teach them diligently. How are we to teach them? Diligently. Teach to whom? To your children. How? Talk to them when you sit at your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes and you shall <coughs> write them on the doorsteps of your house and on, the, and on your gates. There's a mandate here. From God to the families of Israel. A mandate that basically says, this is what it says, teach the children. What does that mean, teach? Now, don't oversimplify that because it's a lot more complicated than just making it that simple. The word teach here, I'm convinced what he's saying to the families of Israel is to say this. Before you can transfer these truths over to the people, uh, over to your children, in other words, is that you are, first of all, to understand them yourself. You are to be a student of the word of God yourself. You are to so love God and so love his word that you are to delve into the word of God and learn it and and apply it to your life and let that that learning and that application, let it transfer and transpose itself into your life as how you live your life. There's nothing worse than a parent who's teaching their child to follow God who is not following God. Our children are the very first ones to see the hypocrisy in our lives. I grew up in a generation of of people where the church was filled with people who said, they said this, don't do as I do, do as I say. Did you follow that? Don't do as I do, do as I say. Well, you know what? If you don't do what you say, you're a hypocrite. And there are many children who have been raised in families of pastors and deacons and Bible scholars and teachers and Sunday school teachers and all that. They saw mom and dad, one thing at church and another thing at home. And as a result of that, they have grown up cynical, hypocritical, and, and, and distant from the church. Now, I'm not saying you got to be perfect because there's no one perfect. But there needs to be some admission of imperfection and some acknowledgement that I'm seeking at least to follow God as best I can with his, with his power and with his help. There's a mandate here from parents. A mandate. What's the method? As you go, wherever you are. If you're a grandparent, you've been given uh, you know, responsibility for a weekend or maybe something with your grandkids, when do you teach them? Okay, I'm going to send them down. We're going to have class. Okay? Now, can you imagine me as a kid? I used to do this when I was a kid? I'd get my brother and sister down and I'd preach to them when they were kids. I would. Yeah, I, I like doing that. I like doing that from since I was a little kid. That's not where you have the setting and, and I told the parents in the 930 service I think that parents and grandparents When you have your kids You ought to have a nightly time alone with God It's great for us to go to visit Matt And, 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 and to see him with his family Gather the kids together And they open the Bible And they read stories And they sing praise songs It's really cool to see that, that, that They're doing that in their family as well Now you ought to have those times But you ought to also It says here As you go when you're walking down the street on a, on a beautiful, maybe less windy day in Wichita, and you see a beautiful flower, take the time to stop and talk about God's creation. When you're at the zoo and you see an animal, talk about the creation of God. When you see a cloud, you know, see what I'm saying? It's as you go. It's a lifestyle. Looking for opportunities for us to then transfer our faith over to our children. That's the method. Why? Because there's a mission here. The mission is not just to transfer it into our children, but it's a mission, if you notice, to put it in all of the places so that as the people come and go from our homes and as they see our lives, they'll see the living word of God having its impact in our lives and we'll have an incredible testimony of the power of God and the transformation of the gospel. The mission is the world. And, and, and the gospel and the lives that we live are often confined into the, the four corners, and there are more four, one, two, three, I don't know, there's eight or nine corners in here. The, the, the multiple corners, I mean, we do it on Sunday morning, but it's to do it out there so that the world can see that there's a difference in the way that we live. To transfer our faith over to our children and our grandchildren is a mandate, there's a method. Why? Because we're on a mission to share the gospel of Christ with the world. Number four, we thus then, to build strong families, must follow the Lord carefully, love the Lord completely, transfer God's truth convincingly. Number four, thank the Lord constantly. Strong families always recognize this incredible gratitude they have for God and give him glory for what he's provided. Notice as God speaks through Moses to the families of Israel, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land, that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities. Notice, that you do not build. And houses full of good things that you do not fill. And cisterns that you do not dig. Which you're glad you don't use a cistern anymore. And vineyards and <laughs> olive trees that you do not plant. And when you eat and are full. Notice verse 12, huge verse. Then take care, then take care, least you forget. Then take care, least you forget the Lord. Take care, least you forget the Lord. Why? It is he who brought you out of the land. Who brought them out of the land? They didn't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. God brought them out of the land in which they were slaves, out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It was God. And so he's saying to them, when you cross over the Jordan and and enter into the promise and to the inheritance of God, do not, do not forget the Lord. Give him praise. Give him thanks. And give him honor. What's the antidote in this passage to ungratefulness? Reflection. He said, I want you to reflect, church. I want you to reflect, Israel, on the past. What was your life like in the past? Some of you were saved at a later later point in life. Some of us grew up in the nursery, like I did. Cut me open, I breed cooperative program. It's just kind of a joke. But um, I mean, some of us, some of you are not traditional Baptists. You don't know what CP is. That's okay. Um, But um, what, what was your past like before you came to faith in Christ? All of us in here have the same past. It says, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wage of sin is death. We were all destined to an eternal condemnation because of our condition called sin. We were not in right relationship with God, and we were destined to eternal separation in hell for all eternity. And yet Jesus... Was sent by the Father, and He reached down into our depravity, and He pulled us up Himself. Not we ourselves for salvation by grace through faith, and that is not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God, so that we will not be able to boast. He pulls us up Himself by His own power, by His own work, didn't He? And He saved us, and He set us free from the slavery of sin and the condemnation of that sin. And now we're no longer separated from the Father. That is our past. What is our present? We have an incredible book filled with promises that talk about in these promises this incredible inheritance that we have now that we are co-heirs with Christ. And as we reflect upon that, we're going to be able to give him the glory and the honor and the praise that is rightfully his. And I think one of the main reasons why sometimes we come into a place of worship like this or we, we don't sit at a table and, and we fail to just kind of quickly go through the prayers so that we can get on to the eating thing, we fail to acknowledge that what we have before us is because of God's gracious provisions. And grace is what? Unmerited favor. What you have today is because of his unmerited favor. He is a gracious, generous God. The only reason why you're able to work is because he gave you the ability to work. The only reason why you have a mind to be able to work is because he gives you the intelligence to do that. All that we have and all that we enjoy today is solely and simply because of him. I mean, look here. He says, you didn't build that. You didn't fill that. You didn't dig that. You didn't plant that. Remember, it's my gracious generosity. And as you remember, you'll be able to, to, to just pour out the praise and the thanksgiving. And, and when, when our families are around, uh, this, this recognition that we have of what we were before and what we are now, and we can't help but just glorify him, it's going to impact their lives. Guarantee it. And we'll raise grateful kids. I mean, the reason why I think we have ungrateful kids today is because most parents are ungrateful. In the sense that they're not recognizing that everything they have comes from where? Comes from God. And when parents do that, their kids understand that, and their kids are grateful then because mom and dad are grateful. Number five Strong families follow the Lord carefully, love the Lord completely, transfer God's truth convincingly, thank the Lord constantly. But fifthly, they reverence the Lord consistently. There's a consistency in this reverence aspect because I think we've lost today the fear of the Lord. We don't respect nor reverence him as a church the way we should. I think unbelievers aren't going to reverence the Lord anyway. But we as the church, the body of Christ, those who are, are his, we often lose, I think, this whole concept of reverence and respect for him. Notice what he's saying. These are God's people he's speaking to, not to the world, but to the ones that are his, the ones that belong to God. He says to the families of Israel, it is the Lord your God who shall, you shall fear. Who should fear the Lord? The people of God. I don't know about you, but when I tell my, I was in a home yesterday and there's a little bitty... I was 18-month-old, I don't, it was somewhere in through there, and uh, she was climbing on the furniture, and dad said, don't do that. And she looks and smiles and goes, and does it anyway. You know what I'm talking about? And he reaches over there and says, don't do that, and sits the child down. Well, the child goes over there and does it again, and he says, don't do that, and does it again. But we're like that with God. And he says... It is the Lord your God you shall fear. That kid should have feared the wrath of God through that parent. Spoil, no, spare the rod, spoil the child. Know what they say? I'm still a proponent of spanking. I said I'm still a proponent of spanking. Okay, just thought I want to know you're with me. Not beating, but spanking. And I think that's part of the problem we have today. My dad wore my rear end out several times. Okay, more than several times. Thank you for your confidence. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who, uh, you are, around, who are around you. Notice verse 15. For the Lord your God in your midst. Where's God? In your midst, it's nice to know wherever you go, he goes with you. Whatever you see, he sees with you. He, he thinks what you think. He hears what you hear. He's there. That's kind of scary, isn't it? He says that you're, he's in the midst of you. Notice he's in the midst of you. He is a jealous God. What kind of God is he? A jealous God. He doesn't share you with anybody. He doesn't share you with anything. If he's not the priority, the prominent person in your life, he ain't happy. Bad grammar, good theology. He doesn't share you with anyone if you're his, and, 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 and you are his, and he is yours. He's a jealous God. Least the, Notice it says the anger of the Lord. When have we ever heard a sermon on the anger of God? You know, there is such a thing called anger that's a good anger. It's called a righteous indignation. You, know what, you want to know what makes God angry? Sin. Oh, so yeah, he gets angry with sin in the world. You know what? He gets angry with sin in your life, as a believer. When we defy him and rebel against him and sin anyway. You're God. And he and this anger be kindled against you. And he destroy you from all the face of the earth. There's consequences. So reverence is a consistent thing. We need to, we need to grasp, I think, as we look at this text, that this whole concept of, of the seriousness of the word of God. God is serious about what he says here. But we shouldn't laugh it off. And we shouldn't think that we're God's favorite over here and he's going to treat everyone else this way and going to treat us different. You know, because we're, we're special. God lets me get away with things because I'm special. Well, in some essence, you are special, but you're not that special. You know, if I grew up in a home where he treated one of us one way and my brother and sister another way, how would that work? Not very good, would it? I guarantee you God treats all of his children the same. And we need to grasp the seriousness of the way that we live and guard against compromise. Because we live in a land that has multiple gods. Not only are there religions that claim gods, but we have the God of power and the God of possession and the God of pleasure. And we have all kinds of gods that are constantly like like Israel was about to go into a land with multiple gods, they're constantly bombarding for attention, and they want to take the priority over God and squeeze God down. And we must constantly guard ourselves against that compromise and love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength, and make Him the preeminent person in our lives. And give Him that priority for the purpose of glorifying God. Number number six. I'd camp out there for a little bit longer, but I don't have time. We need to trust the Lord continuously. Notice what the text says. Verse 16. I'm only going to read 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in where? Massa. You know, I asked the 930 service about that. Not too many people knew about what happened in Massa, and probably I won't do the same here. But... But we have a tendency to forget some of the things that happened in the 40 years that they were wandering around lost. Well, they were really lost. They thought they were lost. God knew where they were. And God was trying to, 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 to kill off a generation of unbelievers so that he could raise up a new generation of believers who would cross over to the Jordan and, and would trust him and believe in him to take possession of the promise that he gave to Abraham. Remember, that was a generation that we can't take the land There are giants in the land. The obstacles are too big and the barriers are too, the walls, Ah, we can't do it. God said, okay, I'll just die you off and wander around for 40 years in the wilderness until this whole generation is dead and I'll raise up a new generation. That's what he did. And here he's reminding the new generation of the mistake of the older generation. You see, God had led his people in that 40-year wilderness to what they thought was a dead end. Now keep in mind, they were being led by day and day. And protected by night. And God led them into what I might, you might want to call a cul-de-sac. At least they, that's what they thought it was. And God led them in the middle of the desert where there was no drinking water. Now, how would you like to be in the desert with several million people and no drinking water? And what, what do you think happened? Come on, you're Baptist. They had a little Baptist business meeting. They did. They did. And they grumbled and griped against God. And in that grumbling griping, they presumed the goodness of God. And they got mad at God. Not only did they grumble and gripe, mistrust, and misbelieve in God, but they tried to stone their leader. You led us here, Moses. You say you were following God. And if you were following God, why did he bring us to this wilderness where there's no water? We're going to stone you, Jack. You're a false leader. They were putting God to the test. And what he's saying to these people is, you need to trust the Lord. He's saying to these families, hey, just because you follow God doesn't mean everything's going to be always great. It doesn't mean your your life is going to be void of trials. It doesn't mean there's not going to be tribulation. It doesn't mean that with roses come thorns. Do you follow what I'm saying? Because there are families today that when, when they follow the Lord and all of a sudden they find themselves being led to a place that they think is a cul-de-sac and they, they honestly thought they were following God and now here's a trial here, here's, here's a cancer, here's a financial circumstance, here's a, a child who's rebellious, here's all these things, and all of a sudden, instead of putting their faith and trust in God, they shake their fist at God and they get angry at God and they don't follow God and, and they waver in their faith. Now, if I'm a child in a family like that and I see a financial problem going on in my family and I see them not putting their trust in God, what's that going to do to my faith as a child, not only as a child, but as I grow up as an adult? I'm going to I'm going to believe that God is not a god of miracles that God is not a god that transcends circumstances that sometimes God leads us in thorny patches sometimes God leads us to what we think are cul-de-sacs where we're thirsting for water and for life and we don't have no no way out but him And I guarantee you that every one of us in this room have been at that particular place in our lives, and when we're there, we need to guard how we react and respond and that we not put God to the test because when we anchor our faith in God and we tell our family, we're in a tight spot. This isn't the best place, but we're following God and we're going to trust God. How do you think that's going to convey to your child? I don't have to answer that, do I? they're going to grow up as a strong adult who trusts in God and when their lives have the same set of circumstances or maybe different ones they're not going to waver in their faith they're not going to put God to the test and test his generous gracious provisions they're just going to keep following because you know life's going to bring its hardships would them in a world filled with sin and we're still reaping the consequences of no longer living in the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you noticed or not. I love living in Wichita. I love Wichita, but it ain't the Garden of Eden. I don't think the Garden of Eden had this much wind. And it certainly didn't have any of those weeds that are growing up in my yard. Or maybe it did and he, Adam didn't worry about it. I don't know. Number, number seven and last, we we'll are run out of time. I think strong families are built not only in trusting God or the Lord continuously, but exalting the Lord cheerfully. And I think he's wanting the people of God to exalt God with an attitude of joy, with a cheerfulness, a recognition of, of where they were and where they are and what God is doing. Notice, it's, it's a beautiful passage in verse 20. He says, when your son asks you in time, in time to come, Moses recognize and realize your children are going to recognize your faith if you live this way. They can't help but see it. And your children are going to come to you, mom and dad and grandparents, and they're going to ask questions. Hey, grandma. Hey, grandpa. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. How can you have faith in God in this time? How how do you put your trust in God? How did you come to faith in Jesus? That's the greatest question any child can ever ask any parent or any grandparent. Tell me about the time when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, and they don't know him yet. Remember when you led your kids to Christ? I do. The greatest moment in my life to see our kids trust Jesus and follow Christ in baptism. There is no greater joy for any parent anywhere than that. And when your son asks you in time to come, And they're going to ask you, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statues and the rules of the Lord our God has commanded you? What's the meaning of all this? What's up about this faith? Verse 21, then you shall say to your son, here's the answer. They're going to ask. And when they ask, because they see that your faith is real, they're seeing you live it out. And when they ask, here's your answer. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. All this happened. We were witnesses to it. And he brought us out from there. He he brought us from Egypt that that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. Tell them how you came to faith in Christ. Tell them how Jesus has made the difference in your life. Tell them how the gospel has had power and impact and has transformed the way that you live and the life that you're serving. And then notice, affirm the commandments of God when you're doing that. He says, and the Lord commanded us all, to all all these statues. He commanded to all the statues to fear, there that word is again, to fear the Lord, to reverence and respect Him, the Lord our God, for for our good always, that He might... Preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. You know, the the righteousness that they're talking about as we close in, in the Old Testament is different than our righteousness today in the sense that their righteousness was also by faith. Faith and a sacrifice. But our righteousness is placed upon a righteousness that is different than the Old Testament, and that now we have Jesus, don't we? I don't know a single one of us in here say, you know, I've been the perfect parent, I've been the perfect grandparent, I've been the perfect child. And as you take a look at the text, it 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 kind of says to us here that 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 they're looking for this sort of righteousness. And and we all remember when when he reached down. To where we were, in our lostness, in our depravity, in our sin. And he reached down and by his power and by his strength, he pulled us out of that. Not, not because we did anything. Remember, we're saved by grace through faith. In that it is not of ourselves, but it is how? It is through what? The gift of God. Why? So that no one could boast. You were lost and doomed and damned. and and a slave to sin and he reached down and he grabbed you and he pulled you up by his gracious act and he planted your feet now on the solid rock of the righteousness of Jesus and now we have a position that's been given to us because of the Lamb of God who was worthy to be slain was without sin and because he was without sin he was able to die on a cross for sins that he didn't commit sins of those who would place their faith and trust in him as their savior and commit to him The lordship of their lives. And he now is our savior. And his righteousness is now imputed. It's been transferred over to us. And now we have a position of righteousness. And now we have been redeemed into a right relationship with his incredible God. But even though now we're positioned in his righteousness and even though now we, we know we can't measure up with the, with the exception of the power and the spirit of God enabling us and empowering us and we know that when we stumble and fall that all we have to do is confess our sin because we know that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know all of that. Yet we still, I think, have a responsibility to be good stewards of the grace that we've received. For Paul says, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. Even though I've been redeemed and I've been positioned in the righteousness of Jesus and I have an eternal hope in what he's done for me and a guarantee that I can never lose that. I still, Jesus says, because you love me, you what? Because you love me, you obey me. You see, I obey him not because I'm trying to earn God's favor. I don't obey him because I'm trying to attain a righteousness because I can never do that. I obey him. I follow him. I I seek to become the family that he wants me to become because I love him. and Because I love him, I give him my all and I serve him and I make him the exclusive God not only in my own life but in my family life. So how does your family measure up? More than likely, you failed somewhere. Does your family follow the Lord carefully? Does your family love the Lord completely? Does your family transfer the truth convincingly? Do you thank the Lord continually at the table as you're saying the meal? Do you reverence the Lord consistently in your life? Do you trust him continuously in every way, in every aspect, whether blessings or trials? Do you exalt the Lord? And elevate him to a position of honor and glory in the life that you live by giving him praise. Where are you today? In the family member, as the family member that you are and in the family that God's given you. Well, First you need to commit your heart and life to him as Savior and Lord of your life. That's where it all begins. Being a family member. And the only way to be a family member is to place your faith and trust in Jesus and accept him as your Savior and make him the Lord, the leader of your life. After doing that, we then, out of love, seek to implement these characteristics, these marks, into the families that God has entrusted to us for His glory and for His honor. Where are you in your family today? Every one of us in here has a family. And as a family member, we have a responsibility. And in that responsibility, we need to be good stewards. How are we, in that responsibility, measuring up to the stewardship of this passage? Let's pray.
1: Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emanuel Baptist Church. Emanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning Emanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30am and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50am in our worship center and is led by the Emanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com.